throne of grace for prompting our hearts for worship, prompting our hearts to also receive the word of God, which we will in a moment. But I actually do want to uh, call your attention real quick back to page two on your bulletin before we pray pastorally and pray for the church at large, which we try to do each and every Sunday. I realize that we have some kids in attendance and others who might not be as familiar with what I spoke about earlier in the service, why this is Reformation Sunday, why that's important. Just go to page two real quick in the bulletin. Let me read this, that second paragraph. It says, each year on the last Sunday of October, many Protestant churches remember a renewal movement within the church called the Reformation. In 1517, a German monk named Martin Luther, sparked by his reading of scripture, and grieved by some excessive practices of the institutional church in his day, led a movement of renewal and a return to foundational truths that either become lost or abandoned. While the movement would spread for years, span across Europe, take various shapes, and ultimately birth what we now refer to as the Protestant church, it began with the fervent biblical convictions of Luther, who articulated his position in 95 theses and posted them on the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church on October 31st, 1517. It is for this reason that on the last Sunday of each October, we remember this man. But more importantly, the ministry and movement of which we are a part for the glory of God alone. In fact, the heart of the Reformation can be summarized in five phrases known as the five solas, which means only or alone, that word sola in Latin. These are the five foundational stones upon which Luther's convictions rested and upon which the Protestant church should still stand today. And here they are, so you can learn a few words and press your friends. Sola gratia, which is Latin for grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola Christus, Christ alone. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. And soli deo gloria, the glory of God alone. These truths can be summarized by remembering humanity is saved by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, which we are taught infallibly in Scripture alone, all to the glory of God alone. So may God continue to bless his church. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, once again we do come before your throne of grace. And Lord, we do thank you for your church universal. We thank you, Lord, that from before the foundation of the world, you have been actively working, actively calling men and women and children to salvation in Christ from every tongue, tribe, and nation, from every time period in history, worshiping in places all over the world even today. And so, God, we are thankful that we are not just Lake Osborne Presbyterian Church, but that we are ultimately a part of that church universal, that we are merely an outpost, Lord, of the greater kingdom of God which you have been building, of which you are the ultimate architect. And so, Lord, we do thank you for our heritage. We thank you for our history. We thank you, Lord, for men and women you have used throughout history to spark renewal, to spark revival to call us back to foundational truths. And so, Lord, on this day, we do think of men like Luther and others who followed in his wake, who you used, Lord, crooked sticks that you used to draw straight lines, imperfect people that you used to ultimately proclaim the perfect truths of your gospel. So, Lord, may we take great comfort and encouragement even in our own lives that you can use us, Lord, 
to do, to do mighty things. You can use us ultimately for your glory. And Lord, we do thank you for this specific church to which you've called us here at Lake Osborne. We ask, Lord, for your continual blessing and favor to rest upon us. Lord, we are a church that has been through much, been through seasons of transition and difficulty, Lord. A church that is still attempting to reach a, a changing world, Lord. And so would you bless us? Would you encourage us? Would you give us the wisdom we need to minister faithfully? Would you provide the means we need to minister faithfully, Lord? God, would you ultimately encourage us as the sheep of your pasture? We think this morning, Lord, of those who are in need of your healing. We think of Anna, who is away from us today in the worship team and feeling under the weather. We pray that you would heal her. Lord, we think of uh, one this morning like Susan Campbell, who lost her father, Bill, just yesterday, a, a man who spent many years in this church, Lord, many, many years. We pray, God, for your comfort to be upon her, for she has her own difficulties, we know full well, Lord, her own health difficulties. We pray for an extra measure of your mercy to be upon her this morning. God, we think of others in this church who are hurting and need your healing touch. God, we also praise you for how you're the author of life, that you give and take away, Lord. But we, so we thank you that you have given new life to this church. We thank you for the Blythe family, Lord, for Eric and Stacy. We thank you for the birth of their third child, Finley. And we ask for your continual hand to be upon them, Lord, to, to encourage them and to, to prosper them, Lord. Oh, God, in all things, would you encourage our hearts this morning? Would you be with us? Now, Lord, as we hear from your word, as we sit at your feet like children wanting to hear from their father, would you speak to us, we ask, Lord? Would you speak to the reading and preaching of your word? And ultimately, Lord, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our sermon text for today is found in Romans chapter 1. You can turn the Bible if you choose. It's also printed on your bulletin, page 8. Again, Romans chapter 1, just two short but profound and impactful verses, both for us and also for those who have gone before us, as we'll talk about. But again, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, they say this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Amen. Why did these verses capture the heart and the mind of Martin Luther over 500 years ago? Why, as we've talked about it, is the movement within the church that which we call the Reformation? Again, regardless of your denominational background, regardless of how much knowledge you even bring to the table about that movement, why is it worth remembering. Again, regardless of perspective or background, why is it worth remembering? Why is it worth celebrating? And the answer is that it's worth remembering because this text specifically, Romans 1 verses 16 
and 17. This text specifically is like a jack-in-the-box. Not the pretty gross fast food restaurant, but the actual, you know, like children's toy, jack-in-the-box. Because 500 years ago, Luther sort of wound it up, all right? He wound it up, the, the surprise of this text, if you will, and it jumped out at him and it changed his life forever. And it didn't just change Luther's life, but as we know and as we've already talked about a little bit, it changed the course of the Western church and ultimately the world forever. The surprise of this text. Now again, as I've alluded to even in the beginning, I would argue, and many would probably argue along with me, that Luther had no intention of starting a whole brand new church. That he had no intention of fracturing the church of his day. That was one of the unintended consequences of his actions, one of the unintended consequences of the stand that he took uh, on the gospel and the, the challenge that he levied against the institutional church of his day. Because though it's not neat and tidy, and if you're sitting in Dr. Copan's class, for instance, though you know, church history has always been this uh, imperfect and, and garbled and complicated story because it involves people, Right? One of the positives, though, that was there is that before the Reformation, you did, for, for most intents and purposes, you had one unified church. You had the Roman Catholic Church in the West, and you had the Eastern Orthodox Church uh, in the East. Well, when Luther comes along and he ultimately sparks the Reformation, that unity crumbles. That unity is taken away. It's like the, the Jenga block. If you play the game Jenga, right? My kids and I love that game. Channing and Wyatt are both very good at it. They always beat me. But it's like the Jenga stack where you pull that one fragile piece and the whole thing begins to crumble. Well, after the Reformation, that's what happens. The the unity of the church, at least institutionally, begins to fracture. And the reason is because Luther comes along and he challenges many things, many building blocks of the church of his day, but particularly one of them was this idea of ultimate authority resting with men like the Pope. Challenging ultimate papal authority. And what Luther does is through verses like this and other things, he takes a stand on this idea of Scripture, Holy Scripture, being the ultimate rule of authority, the ultimate rule for faith and practice. And that's ultimately a very good idea. It's one that we champion. It's one that I took vows to as a Presbyterian minister, so I believe it wholeheartedly. But because we're human, because we're imperfect, and you see it even in the New Testament, places like Corinthians, where they follow after different men. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter, right? When the unity of that church begins to crumble institutionally, and Luther takes a stand on Scripture alone, the question then becomes for later generations, whose interpretation of Scripture? Right? Because Dave has one interpretation, I have one interpretation, Paul has one interpretation, Eric has one interpretation, if we take a passage and read it. Right? And so what happens is that after the Reformation, these truths are championed by God's grace, but what happens is that then you have the rise of denominationalism. And all these different denominations inside the larger Protestant church begin to spring up. Because what Luther does is he breaks that first seal, if you will, that ultimate seal of of, of papal authority. And so once the seal is broken, it can be broken over and over again. And we see that happen even today, right? There are 
myriad numbers of, uh, of Protestant churches. If you've seen the commercial on TV for Sonic, anybody like Sonic, the, 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 the drive through place? Uh, they, they, tout, they have over one million combo uh, combinations. They have so many menu items that you can pair them together and you can actually come up with a million different possibilities, drinks and fries and burgers and hot dogs and shakes and slushies, right? Well, in a way, that's like the Protestant church, right? We have a million different denominations because it all ultimately comes back to whose interpretation of this, whose emphasis on this practice, etc., etc. So again, Luther would have probably lamented that today. Luther would have lamented that ultimate fracturing, but we saw it even in his day. The men who followed Luther couldn't agree on everything. Even within the next generation of men after him, they couldn't agree on everything. And it began to split over and over again. But how does God work? God always works good out of our bad, doesn't he? He always takes our human failings, our good intentions that that sometimes have unintended consequences, and he still works out good ends. That's how awesome and powerful God is. He takes crooked sticks, like I've said, and he draws straight lines. And so one of God's amazing blessings, even for us today in the Protestant church, is that because we do have different denominations, because we ultimately stand under that one big umbrella of the Protestant church, but we have many different manifestations of it, the cool thing in God's mercy is that we're able to reach more people, right? There are people who will never darken the door of Lake Osborne because I wear a coat or because our carpet is whatever this color is, maroon, okay, right? Or because we read too much from the bulletin or whatever, right? There are people who will never darken the doors of Lake Osborne they will darken the door of another Protestant church that speaks to them, and vice versa. And so again, there are so many blessings that come from the Reformation, but even that fracturing of that ultimate institutional unity, God has used to magnify and to multiply the effects of his gospel. Similar to how, like, even in the Tower of Babel, they were scattered in different languages, or at Pentecost, because of the persecution in Jerusalem, they were scattered. What does God do? He sends us out. He multiplies us. He fractures our unity, even, for the ultimate sake of his kingdom and the building of his gospel and his greater purposes. So, again, the immense positive that we celebrate today in the Reformation and on a day like this, is that Luther ignited this reform movement of preaching and evangelism and church planting and revival that ultimately swept across all of Europe and eventually all of the world. And it's centered on one fundamental truth. And that fundamental truth is that God, by grace alone, through faith alone, secures our salvation. That God, by grace alone, through faith alone, secures our salvation. Robert Capon, who is a uh, now dead Anglican minister and and prolific author, uh, one of our more colorful authors, so if you read Capon, which I would recommend, you have to take him, though, with a grain of salt because he says some very colorful things, but at times very helpful things. You can even hear it in this quote I'm about to read. But Robert Capon, the, the late Anglican minister and author, Uh, puts it this way when talking of the Reformation. The Reformation was a time when men went blind, staggering drunk, because they had discovered 
in the dusty basement of late medievalism, a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace, bottle after bottle of pure distillate of Scripture, one sip of which would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The word of the gospel, after all those centuries of trying to lift yourself up into heaven by worrying about the perfection of your bootstraps, suddenly turned out to be a flat announcement that the saved were home before they started. Grace has to be drunk straight. No water, no ice, and certainly no ginger ale. Neither goodness nor badness nor the flowers that bloom in the spring of super spirituality could be allowed to enter into the case. Colorful, is it not, right? But in that quote by Capon, he points out that buried under the ritual and buried under the institution of the church in his day, again, an institution that had become very powerful, very prestigious, but as we know, often what comes with those things is a, a, a sliding from your original moorings, right? That can happen with power and prestige. You begin to slide, you begin to, you begin to slip. What happens is that Capon points out that buried under all those things, ritual and power and prestige, Luther rediscovered the gospel. He rediscovered the gospel. And he drank deep of the central and life-transforming idea of grace. Of grace. Again, in Scripture, he winds up the jack-in-the-box, and he's surprised. He's wonderfully surprised to be reminded of this grace that's found here in the text of Romans. And he laughs with life-changing joy, Luther does. Life-changing joy. And you see, that's always the response of grace. Always the response of grace. It doesn't weigh us down, but it makes us lighter, right? Grace doesn't overburden us, but it sets us free. It doesn't shackle us to religion, but it sets us free within a relationship. Grace produces this activated and this life-changing joy and this activated and life-changing motivation even and zeal. Not a zeal to, to earn God's approval. Not a zeal that we must work in order to earn God's acceptance, but this zeal as we realize we've already been given it in the gospel. We've already received the acceptance of God apart from our works, apart from our resume, apart from our spirituality or lack thereof. And when we, when we realize that, it then fuels us and it sends us and it animates us with this life-changing joy and zeal. And in fact, Luther, when he's reading Romans 1, again, these, these short verses, when he's reading them, he realizes that 1,500 years before him, 1,500 years before him, that the apostle Paul had the same aha moment. He had the same experience. The same surprising grace of God jumped out at Paul when he least expected it. And Luther began to realize that for Paul, too, what was his testimony? Well, he, too, thought that he was chasing after God, that he was working his way into the favor of God and his acceptance, only to, be, only to realize that God himself had been chasing after him, right? That's the testimony of Paul. 
the man that we first knew as Saul, right? That again, if, if, for, if for Luther it was this system of medieval Catholicism that he had been kind of shackled to, and again, I say medieval because I want to make it clear that uh, in many ways the church then and the church now are different. Uh, I do, like I said before, think there are many dear brothers and sisters even today inside the Catholic Church. The gospel can be found in the Catholic Church. You just have to kind of get through sometimes some ritual and some tradition that unfortunately diminishes it and, and buries it. But that was certainly true in Luther's day. The church then was this hodgepodge of social factors and political factors and state-sponsored factors that made it deeply troubling and very, very hard to find the gospel. Excessive practices and corruption, all these things were present. So it was definitely hard to find in Luther's day. But again, if that was the system that, that Luther was, was shackled to, well, for Paul, when he was Saul, what was it? It was the system of Pharisaism, Right? If you remember, Paul grew up the Orthodox of Orthodox. He grew up as a Pharisee. And just like in the Protestant church, just like even in the Catholic church, there are different uh, expressions or manifestations or groups. That was even true for Judaism in Saul's day. There were many different camps. There were many different interpretations or ways to express things. But to be a Pharisee, To be a Pharisee was to be one radically committed to the legal code. To every jot and every tittle of the law of God. In fact, if you remember, uh, it was the Pharisees who believed that only God would return. Only his glory would return. And his favor would rest upon his people and liberate them. Not just from their national oppressors, but would would place them once again in 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 a position of prominence if there was this wholesale return to a zealous keeping of every detail of God's law. Every detail. That's why the Pharisees are uh, portrayed the way they are in the New Testament. That's why the Pharisees react to Jesus the way they do. And that's even why, for Saul, he could delude himself into thinking that he was actually honoring God by breaking the very law that he supposedly championed by murdering those who were against the message. That's how legalism works, right? When you're legalistic, what happens? You hold people to other standards you yourself can't keep. (laughs) Isn't that true? When you're legalistic, you pick and choose which laws to worship, which laws to build your own security around, and you discard the rest. And that's what Saul was doing. Zealous for the law of God. Zealous for every jot and tittle, yet he can delude himself into thinking, if I go and murder Christians, if I go and murder those who are opposed to the message, I'm actually doing a service to God. I'm actually honoring God, right? And so what was Saul doing? Well, again, he was on his way to persecute. He was on his way to do that very thing until he was awakened to grace. He was awakened to grace. It broke into his life the same way it did for Luther. If for Luther it was the pages of Scripture, for Saul it was the actual person of Christ, the actual Word of God himself who makes himself plain to Saul in a vision on the road to Damascus, who makes himself plain to Saul on his way to actually persecute the people of God. He reveals himself 
And what happens is that Paul is a changed man. Saul becomes Paul. He's a changed man. Again, the 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 jack-in-the-box of grace jumps out at him. And for Luther and for Paul, like I said a moment ago, it animates them. It fuels them. It changes their life, and it sends them out to proclaim that message to all the known world in their day, to anybody who will hear. So the question for us is, how about you and I? How about you and I? Haven't we experienced that same grace? I think we have. Haven't we been swept off our feet by that same unconditional love of Christ? So can it still animate us today? Can it still fuel us? Can we still build our lives upon it and take that message to the ends of the earth? Maybe just to the ends of our neighborhood even. The ends of our workplace. I believe we can and I believe we do well to follow Paul's own words here. And what does he say? I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Whether it was Luther, again, confronting the established church of his day and questioning their emphasis on human merit, or whether it was Paul confronting, again, his background and the establishment of his day, and again, that same emphasis on works for salvation, both men came to know the truth of Scripture that only God alone, only God alone can save sinners. They came to know the truth that truly Jesus Plus, nothing equals our salvation. But in knowing that truth, they were not ashamed, again, to to proclaim it from the rooftops of society. They were not ashamed to, to, to jeopardize their reputation, to jeopardize their standing among their friends or among the world. They had boldness because they realized they had discovered, again, think of that that, uh, that image that Capon gave us in a dusty basement discovering bottle after bottle of 200 proof grace. They had this idea. They had discovered this, this life-changing joy. They had discovered the solution to man's problems. And you see, we're called to take a similar stand in our lives. And we can do it in a couple ways. We can stand on that, on that foundation inside the church, Right? Do we not see the church in our day drifting sometimes? The church can drift into legalism very easily, making church all about us, right? All about our marriages and how successful they are, about our families, how successful they are. Church can become just this sort of self-improvement workshop, right, where it's all about me and what I do and don't do. The church can become legalistic, At the same time, though, the church can also become kind of vague and watered down, right? Where we don't talk about sin ever. And so there's no need for the good news, right? No need for the gospel because there's no bad news. And so we just gather together and it becomes this sort of vague spirituality. So even inside the church, we can be called as both preachers but also as congregants, right? Members of of one body. We can be called to take a stand on the gospel, Take a stand on the purity of the message preached, the purity of the source of our salvation. 
But we can also take a stand. Again, we can also refuse to be ashamed of the gospel in the world. In the world. But you might not realize it, but even in a non-religious world, even in a non-religious or agnostic society, people are enslaved to their own religion. Don't you agree? They call it something else. They might not use religious terms and have religious orders. They might not worship in sanctuaries. But in a way, even humanity in the world is enslaved to a religion of their own making. They're enslaved to what we could even call a legalism of the flesh, if we want to call it that. Where again, how is ultimate meaning found? How is satisfaction and purpose found? How is salvation ultimately found? What's found in me? It's a slave to self. It's a slave to self-salvation projects, right? Trying to have that perfect image, trying to have that perfect career or portfolio, trying to climb one's own stairway to whatever heaven and God are defined as being. And so we take a stand in the world as well. We take a stand on the gospel. In fact, Paul continues and he says, For he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. To everyone, both Jew and Greek. When Paul says that it's for everyone, both Jew and Greek, this is a New Testament way of saying that the gospel is the only answer, the only solution for what plagues everybody. And he puts them in two categories, basically. Those inside the church and those outside the church. For the most religious insider, again, trying to work your way to heaven, trying to run the spiritual treadmill to God's approval, the gospel is still your only hope. The gospel is still the only answer. But for those outside the church, again, unfamiliar with the ways of God, trying to earn your own approval through self to God, the gospel remains the only answer, right? In fact, in both places, inside the church, outside the church, what people are searching for is the answer to the question. When it's all said and done, when the dust settles on the story of my life, will I be accepted? Right? Will I be accepted? Will I be, the biblical word is justified. Will I be declared righteous? And again, this is the question everyone wants to know. So again, if you're inside the church, was I good enough? Was I obedient enough? Did I listen to my pastor and volunteer in children's ministry enough? Right? Did I serve enough? Did I attend enough deacon meetings? Did I pray enough and give enough and attend enough? Did I do enough for God to accept me, to declare me righteous? But for the person outside the church, again, whether it was the first century, the 16th century, or today, was I good enough? Was I successful enough? Do I measure up? Did I matter enough for whatever it is that I define as God, right, if you're outside the church? And was I good enough? Did I measure up? Was I successful enough? And as we know, and as Luther Rediscovered as Paul 
discovered? The gospel. The gospel. It answers that question for everybody. Those inside the church, those outside the church. Was I good enough? Did I measure up? The gospel answers that question. And it answers it with a resounding no. No. Sorry to break it to you, but no. You weren't good enough. I wasn't good enough. We don't measure up. I've never measured up. The gospel says if I had given you, if God had given you 10 lifetimes, 10 reset buttons, 10 do-overs, you'd still never measure up. You still wouldn't be good enough. But Jesus was. But Jesus was. He was good enough. He was perfect enough. He measured up. Jesus did for us what we can never do for ourselves. And the Pharisee and the Catholic and the Protestant and the pagan can come and find acceptance, can come and be declared righteous and justified, can be welcomed as if they did measure up through only one thing, through faith in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as we're told in Scripture alone, all to the glory of God alone. I love the words of this old hymn, Rock of Ages. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. You see, men like Paul and Luther remind us that we can never look inside for a native righteousness of our own, but we look outside to what Luther called an alien righteousness. Don't think extraterrestrial. Don't think, you know, green men and saucers, okay? But Luther said we have to look outside of ourselves to an alien righteousness, a righteousness that God demands but only God can provide. And again, Luther rejoiced to realize it is provided by grace alone, through faith alone. And that remains our only hope. Our only hope. So again, I hope this morning that we can feel the challenge laid before us. The encouragement, but also the challenge that just maybe, just maybe, with similar boldness and similar zeal and similar fixation on that, on that singular reality of grace and the gospel that God might be pleased to use even us, even us, wherever we are, to spark a, a movement of renewal, a movement of revival, again, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and ultimately in the church and the world. I'll, I'll close with this. Uh, you may have seen the movie the Imitation Game. The Imitation Game. It was with Benedict uh, Cumberbatch. I think that's his name, right? Benedict Cumberbatch, the actor. The movie, though, is about the story of Alan Turing. If you don't know who Alan Turing is, he was the Cambridge mathematician who was recruited by MI6, by British intelligence, during the Second World War. And he was recruited as this project 
uh, of, of gathering, you know, really, really educated intellectuals uh, to help break the Nazi code uh, of transmission, right? The Nazi code of transmission for their messages uh, called the Enigma device. I was actually fortunate enough, uh, there's a museum up near where my parents used to live in the, in the Carolinas that they had an actual real Enigma machine uh, there on display. You could see it. Um, but Turing was, again, recruited, uh, along with many others, to, to break what was thought to be literally this invincible, just uncrackable code the Nazis would use to, again, relay their messages throughout the war. And, and it's one of those kind of underrated theaters of the war where you had all the different fronts, but it was this intelligence front that was, in some ways, the most important. Um, so if you remember in the movie, or if you know the story already, Turing was eccentric, and his methods were too. And he quickly realized that it was impossible it was impossible to break this invincible code using the old-fashioned method of just getting a lot of smart people in a room, <laughs> giving them a lot of pen and paper and as much time as needed, and just manually going through the, the possibilities and the algorithms and the, you know, all the combinations. And it was just the, the absolute picture of futility. The Enigma machine was too sophisticated too advanced, too fast, that it was like, you know, fighting a, a, a howitzer tank with a, with a stick. And so Turing begins to, to build this counter machine. And it's this machine of his own that can crunch the data at unthinkable speeds. It's really like a, a predecessor of the computer. It's this thing that, it's this, this device that can compute, you know, all the different combinations uh, automatically. And it can do a lot of the heavy lifting for uh, the intellectuals and, and at least close that gap between the enigma and them. But, of course, he's challenging conventional methods. Uh, he's challenging uh, all these different things. And so he's rejected. He's ridiculed. He's persecuted at first. And yet he persists. He persists. And eventually they crack the code. It's a, it's a really cool movie, cool story. Um, and he cracks the code. Saves the war effort, saves Britain and the Allies. And again, we know the rest of the story. But I, I mention it as we close. It's a great picture, in a way, of what the gospel has done for us. The enemy we faced was impossibly sophisticated and strong. And it was the record of our, our sin against the holy God. And try as we may, we could bring our own righteousness as a counter. We could bring our own spiritual sweat, the working of our hands but it never can measure up. It always falls short. But if we cling unashamedly, undaunted to the righteousness, to the grace of Christ, to the heavy lifting that he did for us on the cross, that he did for us in his perfect life, then we find that we're set free. We find the war has been fought for us. That curse that impossible curse, that seeming invincible curse has been broken. And though it challenges the human way of thinking about merit and debits and the, 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 the divine scale of good and bad works, we know the truth of the gospel, that because of Christ and him alone, we're all the way home. We're set free because of his grace and mercy. Let's pray.
Oh, Lord, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for this reminder we've been given through scripture. We do thank you, Lord, for even those times in history where we are driven back to fundamental truths that we can easily lose, we can easily uh, cover over, we can easily diminish in our human way of thinking. So thank you, Lord, for even those like Luther who championed grace, salvation by grace. May that be the, the cry of our hearts as well. I thank you for the congregation who patiently listened to one of my more lengthy sermons. And I pray, Lord, that you would ultimately uh, bless us now as we uh, go to your table and are reminded in that most beautiful pictures of the grace that is ours in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, cover over.